Greetings and welcome to another episode of Tajin. I'm Graham Cornwell, a PhD candidate in the History Department at Georgetown University. We're recording today's podcast on the campus of Princeton University during the Jazirat al-Maghrib Symposium. The idea of the conference here has been to think about the concept of Jazirat al-Maghrib, or the island of the West, in relation to the emerging field of island studies. What is the Maghreb? What are its coastlines, so to speak, both physical and metaphorical? And I'm joined today by the newly minted Dr. Isabella Alexander, who has just earned her PhD in anthropology from Emory University. Isabella is also a writer and filmmaker, uh, and actually putting together a film that deals with her research. You can find more at www.theburning.org. And her title of her dissertation is Burning at the EU Borders, Liminality, Belonging, Morocco's New Migrant Class. So here to talk about her groundbreaking and timely work dealing with sub-Saharan migrants and refugees trying to make their way to Europe through Morocco is Isabella Alexander. Isabella, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners will no doubt be familiar with the escalating refugee crisis in the eastern Mediterranean, the majority escaping the ravages of the war in Syria. You may also recall the 2013 Lampedusa disaster in which 350 sub-Saharan migrants drowned while attempting to cross from Libya to Italian territory by boat. Isabella, could you start off by giving us an idea of the demographics of this new migrant class in Morocco? Who are they? Where are they coming from? And why are they in Morocco? Absolutely. So it was actually one of the biggest challenges for me early on in research because I'm working with a population of clandestine migrants. There is little data estimating even the number that are in Morocco today and the data telling us where they're coming from and where they're hoping to go to is virtually non-existent. So I started my research phase by doing a large-scale demographic survey of the largely migrant-populated neighborhoods around larger urban centers like Rabat. Um, this was with the goal of giving me an idea of how many people were there, what ages they were, gender, where they were coming from, where they were hoping to go to, and then with the second goal of establishing a group of respondents that was reflective of the diversity that I found. And so it's a largely young male population coming exclusively from Central and Western African countries. About 25% of them are under the age of 18. Those who are not under the age of 18 are typically under the age of 30. It's 87% male. And as I said, coming from Western and Central African countries, a large number of them coming from Senegal, DRC, Nigeria, Côte d'Ivoire, and Mali. And how, I mean, how physically do they make that trek from, say, DRC or Cameroon to, to Morocco? So we'll take DRC for an example because it's one of the longer journeys that migrants take. Um, the stories are similar. They're all traveling through smuggling rings. Their smuggler, camel as they call them, charges one lump sum up front so someone traveling from the Congo will pay approximately 5000 U.S. dollars um, on the day of departure. And this is with the goal of making it to Spanish shores. Of course, this in reality rarely happens. Um, you hear stories of smugglers disappearing after the money's been paid. And more commonly, you hear stories of smugglers extorting migrants for more and more money at every leg of the journey. So that it actually becomes much harder than they had first anticipated to make it even to Morocco. Um, there are smuggling rings operating within each country, and so the migrants are passed off from one, wing, one ring to the next as they move from country to country across borders. Um, most of them coming into Morocco are crossing the Algerian border, so they're crossing just east of the town of Ujda. 
And the majority of them are then hoping to either get to the Spanish enclaves where they will scale the fences into Spanish territory or take the eight-mile trip across the Strait of Gibraltar by way of a small wooden fishing boat. And these final legs are controlled by Moroccan smuggling rings. So before we get into the, the meat of your, your research and your argument, um, maybe you could just introduce us a little to your methods, um, how you, uh, you, you talked a little bit how you identified these communities. I mean, your work involves a significant amount of, of trust. I mean, these are really sensitive issues in, in Morocco uh, and, and in the EU. How did you sort of, yeah, could, just tell us more about your methodology, how you kind of began field work. Yeah, so it, um, it is a vulnerable population. I was dealing with really sensitive issues, and I joked with friends later when I got back that I didn't realize when I set out for field work, my biggest challenge would be making friends because that's ultimately what it ended up being. I, I needed to make friends in the community in order to be led into their stories and their lives. Um, I spent over three years very much living amongst these people. Fieldwork was centered either on migrant-populated slums that they called home, um, the marketplaces where the majority of migrants sort of scrape by day-to-day, usually by hawking goods, sometimes working in construction, and the border camps, which accumulate uh, just outside of the Spanish enclaves. These are places where migrants will set up makeshift tent and await a large enough number, usually about 200, to accumulate so that they can storm at the fences at night. So these were the three primary spaces that I called home. Um, And I presented myself as a researcher, as an American, sometimes as an aid worker in conjunction with some work I did with the Centre des Droits des Migrants, which is based out of Casablanca. And I think it was an exercise in establishing trust and slowly establishing rapport. I used a lot of non-traditional methods. Um, You know, most loosely I could describe it as interview, but in fact, I very rarely sat down with someone and had a formal interview. I did what I call go-along interviews mostly, which meant that I was shadowing an individual over the course of their daily activities and just having conversation and asking questions that arose as they moved from space to space. Um, In addition to that, I used a lot of photo elicitation techniques What I found fascinating is that by the time the migrants got to Morocco, they typically had nothing that they had started out with except for photographs. So I was always really curious to ask them, what did you bring when you left, right? Knowing that you would maybe never return home and you could only bring what was on your back. And it was surprising how similar the responses were, even across socioeconomic and ethnic divides. So migrants would bring the necessities, which they considered a change of clothes and some food and water and money. Um, and aside from that, most migrants would bring either a copy of the Bible or the Quran, and they would bring this small collection of family photographs with them. And as I said, they were extorted time and time again at every leg of their journey by border guards and smuggling rings. And so everything was taken from them. You know, if their parents bought them a new pair of shoes, they were gone. If they had any money in their pockets, it was certainly gone. And because photographs were the one thing that held no value to other people, they were often the one thing that migrants were able to hold on to. So they were their one physical connection to home. And I found um, a year into my research, there were still these emotional reactions to the physical steps of migration that I was having trouble accessing. And I didn't feel like it was due to a lack of trust at that point. I felt like I just wasn't asking the right questions. And I discovered that as I sat down with migrants and walked through their photographic histories, that it opened up these new pathways and how they talked about their ideas of home and their ideas of the journey and their ideas of themselves in this liminal space. 
And speaking of their location kind of in this space, the subtitle of your, your dissertation is Liminality, Belonging, and Morocco's New Migrant Class. And so as a, as a title kind of attests, liminality is this key concept mm-hmm. in your work. Um, how does liminality function in Moroccan migrant communities? And to, to clarify, I guess, communities of migrants in Morocco, how does the concept of liminality maybe help us understand their experience? Okay, so I I understand liminality from the anthropological sp- perspective to be this space that exists between what formerly was and what will be. And so it's often talked about in terms of these rites of passage that people undergo. Um, all of us undergo them, right? You get married or you graduate, you move from one social group to another. Um, and I'm applying this to migration studies which are typically rooted either in sending or receiving communities. And I'm thinking about migrants who are stuck in Morocco as existing between sending and receiving, between past and future, between this identity that they burned and this future that they've imagined for themselves. And the ways in which I saw this functioning was in migrants' denial of the present state. So despite the fact that they were in Morocco for long durations of time, some of them for 10 years, some of them for generations as new children were being born there, they still claimed it as a temporary settlement. Um, They never thought of Morocco as home. They never sent pictures back to their family of their new apartments, their new friends, their new jobs. It was always considered a place that lied in between what had been and where they hoped they were going. Um, And the migrants themselves would talk to me about Morocco as this sort of purgatory where they were stuck, where their will was tested through police abuse, through routine extortion, and where they had to prove their sort of preparation for the final crossing by their ability to endure. So you mentioned a term burning, um, and this is again in your title, but a really sort of evocative uh, term that you work with and play with. Explain what burning is in the migrant experience. Um, how you utilize this term and, and how, I mean, maybe metaphorically, it, it tells us what we, what we kind of need to know about, about this, the situation of this new migrant class in Morocco. Yeah, so for people who aren't aware, harig in Moroccan Arabic translates to illegal immigration. Um, migrants are commonly referred to as... Harig, the, the word for burning. Yes, yeah, the word burn. for burning. Um, and uh, migrants are commonly called haragas, meaning either illegal immigrants or those who have burned. And so this term originally um, comes from the burning of one's papers in order to avoid repatriation to your own country if you're detained by authorities at the Spanish border, which is likely to happen. Um, I sort of twist this and consider how it also represents the desire to burn your past, your connections to home, your connections to family, with the goal of a better life, a better future on foreign soil. And... um, Pandolfo was one of the first to write about this in the context of young Moroccan male youth who were hoping to burn for a chance at a future in European soil. Um, and they, her interviews were with migrants who had made it to Europe, Moroccans who were residing on the outskirts of France largely. Um, and I'm instead talking about what it means to burn a past if you never realize the future, if you're sort of living in this space where your identity has ceased to exist. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that the, that there are these terms that Moroccans will throw out um, derogatory. Mm-hmm. How do Moroccans, Moroccan citizens, view this migrant class? I mean, how do they relate to them? 
a lot of my work among Moroccan citizens was focused on ways in which ideas of Moroccanness as opposed to Africanness or citizen as opposed to migrant categories, racial identities of Arab, black, white were changing in light of this really rapidly expanding and new migrant population that the country was dealing with in ways in which migration in general had shaped how people conceived of themselves. I mean, Morocco, you know, in the years following independence from France, 1956, Morocco quickly became a world leader in immigration itself, right? It was um, 10% of Moroccan nationals were residing in Western Europe alone by the turn of the century. And it was just in the decade following that that we saw the flip to a net immigrant receiving country from a largely immigrant sending country. Uh, it's the first time that's happened on the African continent. It's a rare exception in the post-colonial world. So migration was a concept that was very much a part of everyday life in Morocco and what it meant for Moroccan nationals to no longer think of themselves as migrants and mobile, but to begin thinking of themselves as living in a community amongst a new migrant class. And so I noticed a distinction between those citizens who were better educated and upper-class Moroccans, the ways in which they spoke about migrants as a vulnerable population compared to the lower income and less educated Moroccans who tended to speak about migrants as part of a threatening population, right? They threatened their position in society. They threatened their communities. They threatened their jobs in the marketplace. They were often competing for the same positions. And they spoke to me about how because they were more educated, they had a greater respect for and understanding of the difficulties that migrants faced, which may very well be true. I also think what they didn't speak about, this population of Moroccan nationals, is how their status position as more elite made it less likely that they would have daily interactions with migrants, right? They were less likely to ride the public buses. They were less likely to shop in the souk. They were less likely to live in the neighborhoods where migrants lived. So it made sense that they not only could have a greater respect for their struggling, but that they didn't personally feel threatened by this migrant population taking their work or living next door to them. Yeah, right. I mean, this is a state whose resources for uh, impoverished people, its its sort of lowest class citizens, is already pretty stretched. I mean, Morocco is sort of struggling to take care of its own. And exactly. so the competition over these resources would obviously alienate some parts of the Moroccan population more than others. Right. When you already have really high youth unemployment among Moroccan males, of course, a huge population of young males seeking jobs. And as they say, the migrants are always going to be willing to work for less. Right. So it's making um, this competition in these sort of informal labor positions like hawking goods or like working in construction. Yeah. Really highly contested spaces. So I want to ask you about the physical process of the crossing itself. Um, you looked at two main routes in your study, one by water across the Strait of Gibraltar, mm-hmm. the other by land into the two Spanish enclaves on the Mediterranean coast, Suta and Melilla. Um, how, how do migrants decide which to attempt? 
Uh, that's a great question. And I'm not sure that there's much of a decision process there. I don't know how much agency there is in terms of picking one of the two. Um, it seems to be that the smuggling networks are operating at one border or the other. So it's more dependent on which camel, which smuggler you happen to pay, in which direction you sort of get pushed. Um, often, because migrants will make so many attempts, often they've had multiple attempts at both borders. So let's say after five crossings, they might decide that they feel like they have a better chance at one or the other. Um, we now see just in the last couple of years that more and more are attempting to cross at the Spanish enclaves. Um, since they put the sonar radar system in at the Strait of Gibraltar, it's gotten increasingly difficult to cross there. So even though it's only eight miles they're trying to get across, um, the original hope of many migrants was not to actually make it to Spain, but to get rescued by a Coast Guard, by Spanish Coast Guard, who would then take them to Spain and give them a chance to apply for asylum there. Um, but the word has gotten back that increasingly those boats are just pointing them back in the opposite direction. So what we see is these makeshift border camps forming uh, mostly outside of one of the fence crossings in Ceuta. And you'll have migrants there setting up just makeshift camp tents um, and waiting usually about a week for a large enough group to build up in order to make an attempted crossing large it's enough just, like how many yeah it's it's usually somewhere between 150 and 200 that they're waiting on and so there's this paradox of them waiting I spent a lot of time in these camps and the conditions are really squalid the you know sustenance is really sparse so there's this knowledge that they're getting weaker the longer they wait there it's a very physical crossing it requires a lot of strength and endurance and stamina and they know they're getting weaker the longer they wait but they also know they need enough people in order to storm at the fences and so the people are waiting there they're uh, they're making ladders out of tree limbs um and then when they think that they have a big enough and a strong enough group, between 150, 200, mostly young men, they'll storm at the fences at nightfall. Um, and they tell me, you know, we'll start out with this group. Maybe 10 of us will make it over the first fence, maybe five over the second, and maybe one of us will make it over the third. There's three fences they have to cross. And that's a successful crossing if one person makes it to the other side. Now this like the idea of making it to mainland Spain via the Strait of Gibraltar, used to mean that you had a chance to apply for asylum. Um, again, that's not always happening anymore. Oftentimes, even that one who makes it all the way across is simply sent back across the border. So you'll see this, um, I mean, this incredible struggle of these migrants throwing themselves across these three fences, six meters high, razor-wired, and they make it to the other side, and the border guard will simply open a door in the fences and push them back out. So even making that crossing is not always a success anymore. So you've, you've got, I mean, for our listeners that don't know, we, Morocco, there are two Spanish enclaves on the northern coast, the Mediterranean coast of Morocco. And these are fully part of Spain. They're the EU. And, and as, yeah. as you mentioned in your work, this is the only uh, land border with um, between Morocco or really any any African country and right. the European Union, so it it's a very unique place to cross. So I'm curious. I mean, you've got these camps on one side. We know that this is a tactic. Uh, obviously, the Moroccan authorities know it's a tactic. Mm -hmm. it, are these camps ever raided or broken up, or the police monitor them? I mean, how, how do the 
the two countries relate, I guess, in dealing with the, the migrant issue here? Yeah, that's a great question. So it happens quite frequently that they're raided, they're, they're torched. So um, I saw multiple times just in the, in the period that I spent in this particular region of Morocco that Moroccan police would come and torch the camps at night and disperse the migrants with physical beatings. Um, the beatings often concentrate on the hands and feet because it's necessary to have use of your hands and feet to make the crossing. This particular border is, even on the Moroccan side, is heavily patrolled and invested in by Spain. So like you said, it's this fascinating space where you have a mainland border to an internally borderless EU within an African state. And you have, I mean, a situation where where Morocco, I mean, and this is just highlights how bizarre it is. Morocco still has claims on these places and would like them to be returned, which, I mean, they don't, there's no, you know, plan to do so. Yet there's a responsibility to police that border, um, and there's a relationship between Spain and Morocco about the policing of that. Yeah, it's such a fascinating contradiction because, like you just said, Morocco does contest this and wants this land back. And yet they were the ones who built the last of the fences to go to go around the border. It's also a really it's a fascinating contradiction between the two border spaces that I work because I do a lot of work at the Moroccan-Algerian border, which is this kind of amorphous border that exists in the Sahara, you know, the actual physical border is changing as the sands yeah. rise and fall. Um, it's not policed by anyone but smuggling rings and bandits. And then you have this militarized border in the north of the country. So let's talk about that that second border then, or uh, the, the Algeria-Morocco border. When migrants, after they've attempted a crossing and are, are picked up by, um, by Spanish police, they somehow make their way back to this Algerian-Moroccan border. Yeah, it's very common that migrants will find themselves dropped there repeatedly over the course of time that they spend stuck in Morocco. Um, It's sort of what they refer to as the no man's land. It's a place where both Spanish and Moroccan officials will drop them. Um, And when you're dropped there, you have little choice but to march back into the Moroccan territory, usually to Ujda, where they set down uh, where they set down roots and save up enough money to take a bus into one of the larger cities that might have greater economic opportunity. It's a space that's heavily controlled by smuggling rings and by bandits. There's knowledge that because migrants are crossing through that border, it means that there are people who are carrying goods on their backs. And there are um, so many stories I heard from migrants making the crossing who told me that their smugglers would pay off local criminal groups who would come and take their things from them, um, literally leave them without the clothes on their bodies. You said sometimes Spanish authorities, sometimes Moroccan authorities are dropping them off. And and to be clear, they're physically taking them on a bus or something deep into the desert, essentially, and dropping them off, as you say, without anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, back to the relationship between these two countries. I mean, is Morocco... Does Morocco receive funding or aid? I mean, what, why do they do this? Yeah, there's definitely incentive for Morocco to sort of, as some officials spoke to me about it, to capitalize on their positionality as a resource, the fact that they happen to be at this critical border. And so, um, as you discussed earlier in the conversation, Morocco is a nation that struggles itself with economic insecurity, really high rates of unemployment. And so taking funding, which comes... Uh, which comes in the name of development aid from the EU by way of Spain is is hard to turn down. 
Um, so yes, there is money changing hands with each repatriated migrant that's accepted to Morocco, somewhere around a thousand euros. Um, that's with the expectation that Morocco will continue the deportation back to the country of origin, although that's not happening in practice. Um, there's also an investment in Moroccan military, police forces, there's equipment, um, and there are limited numbers of visas reserved for Moroccans who are um, upper income or highly skilled, them to come to Europe in exchange for taking the haragas or migrants yeah. with burned papers who they don't want. I mean, maybe it's not a massive amount of, of money or aid. I mean, it's it's totally bizarre to think about Morocco capitalizing sort of in its geopolitical position as a place in which, you know, unwanted migrants, refugees are sort of discarded, that it is that it is sort of engaging in this relationship for some sort of financial or, I don't know, political gain, um, yeah, simply because... Yeah, and it's on multiple levels. Yeah. So, the, so we're talking about the state level, right? The state is getting money for it, but also on a more individual level. Um, like I was saying how Morocco itself used to be an immigrant-sending country, and I talked to a lot of Moroccan men and return immigrants in Morocco, and they said, you know, I can now make more helping Africans who want to cross than I can make being a migrant in Spain myself, right? I've been there. I know how little I get paid as a farmhand and, you know, working in the back of a restaurant. And I know how much I can make now taking part in this growing industry of human smuggling and migration in Morocco. So on multiple levels, people are, are capitalizing on it. So in terms of civil society uh, in Morocco, I guess maybe abroad too, who, who works on this issue? So there's a very limited number of groups serving this population of sub-Saharan migrants in Morocco. Um, it's due in part to the fact that it is such a new phenomenon we're talking about. It's really since the year 2000 that it started to amass to a sizable population. And while there was a pretty large and well-established um, set of organizations serving Moroccan migrants and return migrants. There haven't yet been groups that have arisen from the Moroccan side to address the issues of sub-Saharan migrants in Morocco. The ones who are there are European or religious organizations. So you have uh, Spanish and French organizations there, and you have a handful of Christian organizations and a prevalent uh, Catholic church in Rabat and... Um, in some really interesting cases, I've seen how even migrants coming from majority Muslim countries are, while they retain their Muslim identity religiously, they're, as they describe it to me, um, socially or publicly transitioning to a Christian identity so that they can access these services. Um, there is a UNHCR office in Rabat. However, there's no path to legalization for migrants, um, whether that be naturalization or some kind of visa status temporarily within Morocco or application to refugee or asylum status that would be recognized more broadly. So migrants going into the UNHCR are given asylum applications to fill out and told that they should hang on to them in the hopes that they might someday get to Europe where they can actually file them to be considered. So, I mean, and then what do these other um, smaller or church-related groups actually offer to migrants? So there's a, there's a breadth of services. Um, they give food, you know, some of the churches will have 
services on Sunday and they'll offer a meal afterwards. There are a couple of community organizations. There's a Spanish-run organization, Rabat, for instance, that will offer English lessons for children. Um, things like this. They're they're sort of your quotidian, you know, used clothing, food really basic educational services. You can sometimes access medical services or um, attorneys who are willing to hear your case and give you advice. These are really obviously in high demand and very limited, the amount to which individuals can access them when there happen to be volunteers in country working. Um, One thing that I began to notice was, you know, I questioned a lot how migrants, despite the difficulties of the present state, maintained this idea that things were better one step further north. And I started to realize that the public face of Europe in Morocco is one of humanitarian aid. It's the Spanish caseworkers, it's the French volunteers who are teaching their children, who are giving them a free meal, who are clothing them. And the extent to which this is happening is very limited. So I don't want to over-exaggerate the services available to migrants there. But to the extent to which they are available, it's always a foreign face. Um, The face of the EU and Spain pushing migrants back at the border is in fact the Moroccans operating, you know, on the behalf of Spain and the EU. It's very rarely the Europeans who they see there. So, I mean, are there Moroccan-run, Moroccan-led organizations that migrants trust? I mean, the migrants go to uh, for for relief and, and services. I mean, maybe even in in under the guise of religion or. I don't know of a single one. Um, it is a you know the migrant population is predominantly Muslim. You have a smaller subset of Christians, but it's predominantly Muslim population. And some of them will attend community mosques. They're more likely to attend the mosques in the outskirts, sort of the migrant populated slums where they live, and less likely to attend the central mosques in the communities where they might be working or finding temporary employment. Um, but in terms of considering the mosque as a source of aid or even really as a source of community or as a home base for them in Morocco. I, di- I didn't see that. Um, I heard so often, it's a place where I can pray, but I'm never considered a Muslim brother. Um, I talked to a couple of a couple of imams about this and sort of how they reconciled the treatment of especially Muslim migrants and hopeful refugees with the idea of Muslim brotherhood and the idea that you are supposed to take care of those less fortunate and give to those who are in need. And I often heard a description of aid being reserved for your community and them drawing a line between the community that they considered theirs, the Moroccan community, and the migrant community, even if they were Muslim, right? So the idea was that it's my obligation to provide aid to my community, and in fact, providing aid to the Muslims who are here illegally is taking away from the aid that I could give to my community, I mean, you have that really um, evocative uh, passage where uh, they're, they're sort of talking about the murder of a, of a migrant uh, on a bus, a Muslim migrant, and the way it's the way it's narrated. They specifically say, you know, why wasn't somebody saying like, "Stop! Like, this is our brother. This is our uh, our fellow Muslim." Um, and and it doesn't seem like there are calls to this sort of common religious bond. There were so many cases of really public and egregious murders on the street, on public buses, um, Moroccan police officers and military men who remained uncharged. And there was some public outcry, but even then the outcry was largely from foreign organizations. Medecins Sans Frontier wrote a lot about it. Um, 
There are two French human rights organizations operating in Morocco who organize demonstrations against the treatment of blacks in Morocco. But yeah, let's let's turn to Morocco's relationship to the EU. Um, I mean, where is pressure on Morocco coming from um, to sort of deal with this problem internally? And how is that pressure being applied? You see it both in terms of the ways in which the EU, often by way of Spain, is reaching beyond their own borders to rewrite Moroccan immigration policy and reshape Morocco's own border controls. Um, Morocco is actually the first Arab Islamic world with an immigration policy, which was written largely by Spain just in the last decade. And then more tangentially, you see it in terms of the foreign investment in Morocco's military and Morocco's police forces and in Morocco's detention centers. And so Morocco, in exchange for participating as some would say a police dog of the EU or as a final destination for African migrants, receives financial aid in the form of development, receives military equipment and limited visas. And I mean, this situation parallels sort of closely the some of the dynamics we're seeing like in the Eastern Mediterranean now with Greece and Turkey specifically. Yes, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how that unfolds. There is talk of Turkey being finally granted the admittance into the EU that they have long sought in exchange for playing a very similar role as a final destination for migrants, in this case, not traveling from south to north, but from east to west. Um I think that the idea of migrations traveling no longer around predicted routes from sending sending country to receiving country, but instead migrants being stuck in these liminal spaces draws us to the periphery of the EU in its entirety. So it's not only Morocco and the other Maghreb countries, but it's now increasingly Greece, Turkey, and other Eastern European countries on the periphery of the EU that we're going to start seeing foreign investment in. Right. I mean, it's sort of amazing to think that like you're sort of the EU and more, maybe more specifically France, Germany are are kind of like maybe paying off in a way countries gradually more closer to their borders as these groups of migrants sort of move that way. Yeah, to become these permanent holding grounds for migrants and would-be refugees. I think it's hard not to have sympathy for all players involved. You, you mentioned countries like Germany and France and Spain. These countries have seen an increase in applications for asylum. It's risen by 73% in five years. The systems are completely overwhelmed. I mean, it now takes, in Spain, it takes upwards of 36 months to have a case reviewed. More than 90% are being denied. And so their systems are completely overtaxed and it. It makes sense in some ways that Morocco and Turkey and Greece become desirable destinations to hold migrants and refugees that their systems simply can't can't incorporate at this point. You were kind of talking about the big, I mean, the hot button issues of the day. I want to zoom in a little bit and just ask you, what does uh, a migrant's day-to-day existence in Morocco look like? So for those who have been in Morocco, even for 10 years, let's say, there's still uh, an inclination to consider it a temporary space. Um, 
the majority of them are living in migrant populated slums outside of urban centers and are finding work in the marketplace, oftentimes hawking goods, which might range from counterfeit clothing, which is largely brought in by the smuggling rings from Senegal, to repurposed trash. Um, those migrants talk about routine police harassment and routine apartment searches by landlords. And these both illustrate the ways in which it has become virtually impossible for migrants to accumulate any money in Morocco. And this is really their, their largest barrier to escape. So for those who are still dreaming of making it into the EU, and equally for those who have decided that they want to go back home, neither of them can leave without money. They need around 2,000 US dollars to pay smugglers to take them either way. And because police so routinely harass them and take their goods and take any money that they have on them, and because they face the same kind of pressures from landlords, it's become virtually impossible for them to accumulate the money to escape. They're quite literally trapped there by their conditions. And, I mean, f- finding housing, um, you know, in, in a basic way, is that, what sort of difficulties are there? I mean, do you have to legally register, you know, your your lease or things like that, and they're unable to do that without papers or... No, but it's it's another one of the biggest challenges that they face there. So just like finding work is difficult, and just as they have no recourse if they take a job and are failed to be paid for it, you see the same kind of thing unfolding in terms of securing securing housing. It's very difficult to find landlords who are willing to rent to sub-Saharan migrant tenants. Those who do rent are notorious for charging much higher rates, for charging multiple months payment up front as a security deposit, and then for evicting them quickly without returning the money that was paid or for never providing the housing at all. On top of that, like I mentioned, their routine apartment searches by landlords, which take any goods of value that are left in the home. In addition to that, in the northern part of the country where you see migrants congregating in hopes of making a crossing in, in towns like Bukalev outside of Tangier, which is one of the, the largest migrant populated slums, you have landlords who rent apartments that are owned by Moroccan immigrants who are abroad in Europe to hopeful migrants and refugees who are squatting there before the smugglers take them across. So you sort of almost got like landlords that are basically squatting illegally on these places and renting them out. Yes. And it's a really prevalent scheme in cities in, in northern Morocco. This just erupts in the summertime when these Moroccan migrants return home to spend the summer months in their vacation homes and... The landlords evict large numbers of sub-Saharan migrants, and then you have large populations of sub-Saharan migrants living in the streets. I guess all this, I mean, sort of the difficulty, the, the really large numbers of people who are stuck in this kind of purgatory or this liminal space um, within the, the ritual of, of migration makes me wonder, I mean, why, why are these people leaving to begin with? What are the conditions like in DRC? Um, or Cameroon, or, or wherever they or Senegal, um, that make them make this journey. That I mean, they must have heard about the sort of incredible expense and hazards that come along with it um, along the way, and unlikeliness of of actually reaching it. So I think part of the problem is that they don't. Uh, one of the things I address in my work is this idea of continuing the imaginary. So there's such an honor that comes with being selected as the one to leave. It's usually a family network or a community that's banding together to pay the fees demanded by smugglers. And so you're chosen as the one who's the you know most promising student or the hardest worker, the most likely 
to succeed in your migration and to repay your family in the future. Because there's this honor and this obligation that comes with it, I think there's also a lot of shame in relaying what feels like a repeated failure and your ability to make a successful journey. And so I was really surprised to notice among migrants who I worked with the stories that they sent back home. Um, This was another thing that I was able to access largely through photographs. Oftentimes migrants would send photographs home with their letters to their families. And I noticed that they were sending photographs of places they didn't live and friends they didn't have and things they hadn't done and always accompanied by remittances that stretched them far beyond their means, there was this idea that you wanted to represent a successful journey for the people who had given so much so that you could leave. So I do think one problem is this continuation of the imaginary, which fuels this dream that if you travel north, life is promising and full of riches. Um, In addition to that, the People who are leaving, you mentioned sort of the driving forces of the community and of the individual, and it's a, it's a combination of both political and economic instability. I think the distinction that we tend to make between the refugee fleeing political persecution and the migrant fleeing economic insecurity in search of better economic opportunity is, is largely a false one. I think that we can muddle that a lot more than we do. The migrant is the refugee. The refugee is the migrant. They're traveling along the same networks. They're paying the same smugglers to end up on European shores. And, uh, you know, largely the same people who are pushed away by political oppression are also drawn by the fact that they could pursue an education or make money at a job abroad and take care of their family back home. I have a quote I'd love to read from one migrant who I worked with. His name is Musa. He's male, 24 years old, originally from Côte d'Ivoire and trapped in Morocco for six years since the age of 18. Let me tell you a truth, he said. Those migrants who tell you that they don't want to go home because life is better in Morocco, they're only telling you part of their stories. It's not that life is better in Morocco, where they treat us like dogs and we struggle to eat. It's that they're closer to their dream in Morocco. I know how it is to work hard in your country and think that you have it good. You eat, you sleep, you enjoy your life, you enjoy your family. But as you grow, you start to see those who left for Europe coming home with nice cars, coming home to build big houses, and you start to realize that no matter how hard you work in your country, you'll never have a car, you'll never build a house. This dream of leaving for Europe starts to burn in your heart, and once it does, it will never burn out. So you save up all of your money to leave, to leave your home, to leave your family, to leave everything that you have known for everything that you do not. You leave your good life behind for a dream. You say that you will make that final crossing to Europe, even if it means death. This dream becomes worth dying for so quickly. And maybe one day you will cross, but sooner or later, you'll be sent back to Morocco. And do you think of returning home then? No, you can imagine nothing but trying again. You'll spend your whole life in Morocco if you have to, because it's one step closer to your dream. It has nothing to do with life in Morocco being better. Life in Morocco was hard, so much harder than anything you had known before. It has nothing to do with choosing Morocco. None of us choose Morocco. It's only a bridge to where we want to be. I think that's a a great place to end, um, to conclude uh, a very powerful note um, about the 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 incredible difficulty and and also persistence of of this uh, uh, within the migrant experience. Isabella, thank you so much 
for joining us. Thank you. It's been uh, really fascinating and, and very timely. Um, we also want to thank the Princeton North African Studies Group for putting together this conference and uh, giving us some space here on campus to, to record the podcast. Uh, thank you for listening and, and tune in next time.